Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. Today, I believe God has given me a word for the church. I want to jump back into our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We've been looking at this sermon that Jesus spoke. It is the greatest sermon ever preached from the greatest man who's ever lived. And so today, I want us to put ourselves in the place of the first hearers of this sermon. And even as I read, know that this is Jesus preaching to you. And so I want you to receive it in that way, with an open heart and with an open mind. And I believe that by faith, you're going to capture some things that Jesus is speaking to you today. Can you say amen? Amen. Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount off in the most incredible way by pronouncing blessings over people. Isn't it powerful that God chooses his position towards his people to be one of blessing? When God brought Adam and Eve together in the garden, before he gave them the, the um, uh, what's the word, the principle or the command to be fruitful and multiply, which many people in this church take very seriously. <laughs> the Bible says that he blessed them and then they were fruitful and they multiplied. And you see all through the Old Testament, fathers and grandfathers blessing uh, their children and giving them an inheritance. And so that's what Jesus comes to do is take that position as God over people, as Father over people, and he starts the sermon off by blessing his people. From there, he moves into a position of telling us who we are, and he gives us some metaphors to show exactly who we are. He says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, and you are a city on a hill. And he's setting you up to know this is what it looks like to be a Christian in this ungodly and secular world. He's telling you who he is calling you to be. And then he moves from that to where we find ourselves now, and, 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 and he begins to lay out who he is and why he's come. He starts with the blessing. He tells you who you are, but now Jesus is going to let you in on who he is, what his mission is, what he has come to accomplish. So will you turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5? We're going to be here, as I said, for the next few weeks or so, Matthew chapter 5. And we are going to read and hear on who Jesus is and why he came to us. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to start in verse 17. And as you turn there, I'm just going to pray one more time. Lord, anoint the hearing of the word. Anoint it, Lord Jesus, with your spirit. I pray right now, God, that our church increases in reverence for your word. I pray no distractions and no self in any of this, but Lord, let spirit come and speak. Amen. Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Right off the bat, he's correcting people, and now he's going to reveal why did he come. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I have not come to abolish the law. I've not come to abolish the prophets. I've not come to do away with it. I've not come to say it doesn't matter. No, I've come to fulfill them. Well, why is this significant? What does this mean? Well, the truth is, mankind couldn't fulfill the law or the prophets. As good as the law was, And as powerful as the prophets were, humanity could not measure up, couldn't live by their words, and and, and so they constantly fell short. 
Now Jesus comes, and everyone can tell he is different, radically different. And some people might even think he has come to make a brand new way. And here what Jesus is saying is, I'm not here to get rid of the old, I'm here to fulfill it, supersede it. I'm here to fulfill the old covenant, and I'm here to give a new covenant. Why is this so significant? We are seeing Jesus say that he is doing what mankind couldn't do. Couldn't fulfill the law. Couldn't follow the prophets. So Jesus says, well, that's why I'm here. I'm here to step into this gap of the law. Paul tells us that the law is like a mirror. That God created it so that he could hold it up to people. And when they looked into the law, they saw the reflection of their own sin. They saw who they really were. They saw their shortcomings. And Romans 3 tells us all have sinned and all have fallen short. There is no one in human history that could look into the law and not see a flaw, a sin, or a shortcoming. No, all mankind looked in and saw the reflection of what their sin looked like and what sin looked like at large. This is why God gave the law. Without it, we wouldn't even know what right and wrong is. Without it, we wouldn't even know that we need a savior. Without it, we wouldn't even know where we need salvation. It is the mirror where we see ourselves for who we really are. That's what the law is. It's a reflection. See, when God gives the Ten Commandments to people, he gives them to people coming out of a lawless land, Egypt, amongst lawless people. And, And one of the commandments that God gives is, thou shalt not murder. And it's not until that law is held up that it reveals back to humanity that life is precious, that it is valuable, that it is holy. And you might think like, what? Of course, of course you shouldn't murder. But see, all the way back then, that, was, that wasn't taken for granted. That wasn't obvious. God had to give the law that murder is wrong. Why? Because life is valuable. Why? Because it's created by the creator who breathed it. Life is given by God, therefore it is eternally valuable. We wouldn't know this without the law. And you might think, you might think well, well, I don't know. I think that's obvious. Back then it wasn't, but honestly, even now. I could take you to countries all over the world where life is not precious, where it's treated as flesh. Even in our secular society, we are moving towards a lack of love for life where life is not precious in the womb or outside it. But see, God gives the law so that when we look into it, we see our own reflection and say, "Uh uh-oh, we've got to work on this area. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not become a thief, steal. Thou shalt not covet. All of these things is what God gives us for us to say, okay, these are the areas where we need to work on. These are the areas where God is calling us to live a higher standard of living. And from that came a great nation. But now Jesus is coming to reveal what the law really means, not just in word, but in principle, not just by the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. In other words, he's coming to elevate the law to a higher level. He says this, moving, continuing, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them 
and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Come on, who wants to be called great in the kingdom of heaven? Come on, who wants to be known in the kingdom of heaven? Our, our culture and society is searching for greatness. It desires influence. It wants to be known. It wants recognition. It wants fame. Jesus gives you the, 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 the key right here. Whoever does the law, here's how it works. Do you want to be great in the kingdom? Here's how it works. Keep God's commandments and lead others to keep God, God's commandments. It's so, it's so simple. This is how to become great in God's eyes. Keep his commandments and create a culture around you with your friends, with your family in this church, a culture that keeps God's commandments. That gets God's attention. He says, look at what they're doing, how they're living, how they're speaking, and they're teaching others to do the same. He moves on and says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is difficult. This is a tough verse. Some of your reactions would be, that's impossible. Certainly the reaction of the people that heard this when Jesus spoke it, who were sitting on that mountain, their reaction would have been, that is impossible, Jesus. How could our righteousness exceed that of the most righteous people that we've ever seen? The scribes and the Pharisees, they seemingly did everything right. I mean, they lived by the law. They, God gave the Ten Commandments, but from that, they extrapolated 613 commandments. That's quite a multiplier. And they lived by 613 laws. They were rigid. They were consistent. They tithed, Bible says, on even a little bit of, of their grain, a little bit of their herbs and spices they would tithe. These guys were technical in their approach to God. Righteous, they fasted twice a week. Some of you fast twice a year. Twice a week. They held themselves for the glory of God. They went to synagogue every day. They prayed. They repeated prayers. They taught. They sought God. Do you know most of them had memorized the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Have you ever tried to read Leviticus and Numbers? They memorized it. You want to talk about righteous. You want to talk about works. You want to talk about earning. These guys have done it. And Jesus shows up and says, if you want to get into the kingdom, you have to do better than they've done. Well, how? How can we do it, God? God, we, we can't keep that level of righteousness. We've fallen short. We've looked into the law and we found ourselves wanting. We've looked into the mirror and we've seen the reflection of our sin. God, we know we're not enough. What do we do when we are not righteous enough to get into the kingdom of heaven? See, what Jesus is doing is he's trying to show us that the law reveals that righteousness really is out of reach. Therefore, you need a Messiah. You need a savior. You need a helper. You need a redeemer. You need someone that's powerful, that's potent, that's holy, that's mighty, that's righteous, that's good. You need someone that is greater and gooder than you. You need salvation. Can you say amen? amen. 
And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying you need someone else's righteousness because yours will fall short. The truth is, thank you, Jesus. He has become our righteousness. Where we have fallen short, where we are less than the scribes and the Pharisees, he is more. For he kept every law and he lived a sinless life and he did everything righteous before God and he is the spotless lamb that gave his life so that you and I could receive life. He gave of himself that we might receive his righteousness. Look at what it says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith, in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. Come on, turn to your neighbor, say, by faith. Turn to your other neighbor, say, in Christ. And not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You're not good enough and you, you can't be enough. It has to be in Christ Jesus. It has to be his righteousness. It has to be his godliness that we get to put on ourselves. That's the only way we will enter the kingdom of heaven. He has to know us by name. We have to be servants of the Most High. And so this is what Jesus comes to do in the Sermon on the Mount. He begins to, he begins to show what the law is and, and how we can't fulfill it. Therefore, we need someone else to fulfill it who we know is Jesus. And now once that's established, now Jesus begins to set a new standard of how to live. Now that I've set the standard on what the law is, now that I've set the standard on how the scribes and the Pharisees live, now that I've come, I've come to set a new standard, a new paradigm, a new way to live under grace, under Christ, under forgiveness. And so Jesus begins to teach. And he says this, you have heard, that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say, but I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, or in Aramaic, it's raka, which means you worthless, you imbecile. Whoever says that will be liable to the hell of fire. A lot of you are out. We're two, two verses in. <laughs> Some people are like, oh, we had a good run. <laughs> you know, I, was, I, I, was, I said that in the parking lot, you know. <laughs> what is Jesus doing? He's coming to set a new standard of what living is. He's coming to say, look, I don't want you to just follow the letter of the law and become a religious drone. I want for you to understand what the law means. I want you to understand how it looks to live. See, what Jesus is coming to do is to elevate your character to become like Christ. And so he says, look, I, I know what you've heard and I know what you've seen and I know what your culture and your society has said, but now I'm here. And now I'm here to set a new paradigm and a new way to live, so I say to you. I mean, think about what Jesus is doing in this moment. He's turning everything on its head. He's literally superseding the law, because we've already established that the law can't save you. So thank God Jesus is saying, but one greater is here. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you, I don't even want you to be angry with people. What is Jesus doing? 
He's elevating your character. He's elevating your thinking. He's elevating how you're going to live. And he's, he's creating a contrast for what you've seen other people live or even what you've heard moral or ethical living is. And now Jesus is saying, no, I'm saying something new. I'm saying something greater. And, and I guess the, the question or, or the challenge that, that this proposes to you and I when Jesus does this is simply this. Where do you get your moral law from? Where do you get your standard of excellence and ethics from? Jesus is saying, I know what your moral law is, but now I say to you, come up higher. Who is he to do this? Who is this man to say that he is greater than the law of Moses? Who is this man? He quotes the scribes. He quotes the Pharisees. He even quotes Moses in this next section of scripture. And he says, I know what Moses said, but I say. He's claiming to be greater than the greatest prophet who's ever lived. He's claiming to be the final and full moral authority of everyone that's hearing this sermon then and now. He is claiming to be the moral lawgiver. Where do you get your moral law? Where do you get your right from wrong? Is it from what you've heard said? Maybe your teachers, maybe your professor has taught you what is morally right or wrong. Maybe it was from your parents. Maybe it's just from the law that the government has set down. That's what right and that's what wrong is. Where do you get your moral law from? Is it from the media? Is it, what, is, is it what, from what is popular at the time? Where do you get your moral law? Is it just from your feelings? From your emotion? I feel like this is right. I feel like that is wrong. Your fickle feelings? Where does your standard of living come from? Where do your decisions get processed through? Here Jesus is saying, I know what you've heard, but I'm here to tell you something new. I know what the law has said, but I'm here to show you what the law really means. I, I know what, what has been done in the past, but I am here, hear me, to claim authority over your character. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's claiming authority over your character. Over your mind, will, emotions, and decisions, Jesus is saying, I'm here to give you something new. Who is he to do this? Who is he to do this? Who is this man that claims to be the final arbiter of truth? When Samantha and I were in Oxford, England last week, we got to go to the home of C.S. Lewis, the great writer. The, the name of the home is called the, the Kilns. We got to tour it. You might know C.S. Lewis as the, the writer of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, but do you know he's really one of the greatest Christian writers of the last two, three, four hundred years? Wrote this incredible book, Mere Christianity. He wrote the book Surprised by Joy, A Grief Observed, The Screwtape Letters. He was a prolific writer. And he, um, he tells the story of how he came to know Jesus Christ. He started out as a hardcore atheist in all his upbringing. In fact, if you want to see the, the story in a kind of a condensed version, I'd encourage you to go uh, rent the movie The Most Reluctant Convert. It's absolutely incredibly well done and tells the story of C.S. Lewis's conversion in, from the place that it, where it happened. And, and he talks about how how he began to question where do we get our morality from and who's in charge here. And slowly over the span of years through conversations, through revelations, J.R.R. Tolkien had a great influence on his life. He came to a point where he faced 
what's called Lewis's trilemma. When he read the words of Jesus, he had to choose. Is this man a liar? Maybe you've heard this argument. Is this man a lunatic? Or is this man who he claims to be Lord of all? Because what he says is the, the, the idea that Jesus is a good moral teacher, a good guy, a wise, wise man, you know, someone like Plato or Aristotle or, you know, one of the greats, Socrates, Confucius, he's, he's one of them. Jesus doesn't leave that open to us. He doesn't give us that option. No good moral teacher would stand before a crowd and say, I am the bread of life. And if you do not eat of me, you will not receive eternal life. No good moral teacher would stand before people and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if anyone wants to get into heaven, you've got to come through me. No good moral teacher would say, before Abraham was, I am. Which is the word for God. I mean, this, this is what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming that he is God. And this debate still rages on. I mean, right now uh, on our media channel, which is going pretty well, we have a video that's going, you know, it's doing well. It's going semi-viral. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but all of the comments, all of them, are people saying he was a good man, but he wasn't God. He was a prophet, but he's not God. This is the argument of today. But how could a prophet be a prophet if he's claiming to be God? How could he be a good man if he's saying, I am God? and you're going to live by my words. I know what you've heard said, but now I say. That's a claim to authority. And what you and I have to decide is, is he telling the truth? Is he the final authority? Is he a liar when he says those things? A fraud? A con artist? Is he a lunatic where he really believes he's God, but he's not? Or is he who he says he is? Lord of all. But good moral teacher, that's not in the options. No, no, he's claiming to be God. C.S. Lewis says, Christianity, if true, is of infinite importance. If untrue, is of no importance. But the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Why? Because Jesus is claiming Godhood. And he's claiming Godhood over your life. And if he is who he says he is, then our only option left is to bow before the king and receive him as Lord of all. Lord, don't just save me, lead me. Be my king, be my Lord, be my God, take all of me. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, puts it this way, Christ is either Lord of all, or is not Lord at all. This is the option, the only options that Jesus gives us. The problem is many times people accept Christ philosophically, but not practically. They, ex they accept him in a religious way, but they don't meet him in a relational way. They accept him with their mind, but the conviction never carries to their heart. You could call these people Christmas Christians. They come here and there. They don't hate God. They're not against God. They might even say, I'm a Christian. And yet, their character has not been changed. Their decisions have not been affected. They do not follow Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, you're going to have to follow me. 
You're going to have to live like I live. You're going to have to sacrifice like I have sacrificed. And the problem is many people in our society and the European societies, they accept Christ philosophically, but not truly. Their confession does not become their conviction. And if your confession does not become your conviction, eventually it will lead to no action. But if your confession becomes your conviction, eventually it will affect your actions. Jesus speaks of these people, these sorts of religious folk. And he says, these people in Matthew 15, 8, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And see, that's what Jesus wants. He wants your heart. More than just your confession, more than just even your actions, he wants it all. He wants your heart and your motivations. We have to guard about, uh, we have to guard ourselves against becoming like the Pharisees who knew all about God and yet never knew God. Who knew all about the Savior and yet never recognized the Savior. Hear me, we don't want to be, we don't want to be a, a religious commune. That's not us. We don't want to be a country club of moral people. We don't want to be an ethical gathering. We want to be the church of Jesus Christ who follow him as Lord, as God, as Savior. We believe he is who he said he is, Lord of all. But we have to guard against that religious spirit that wants to come and take over. And, and, and sometimes you might even feel it on Sunday morning. You wake up, you say, should I go today? Or you think, oh, maybe I'll just go. And I'll, I'll get out of there real quick. I'll go late and then I'll leave early. You got to guard against sometimes even the gospel inoculation. I've heard it before. I've heard one pastor refer to it as that a gospel inoculation. Enough religion that you think you're good, but no salvation. We want more than a taste. We want more than a taste. We want more than a religion. We want the Savior. We want the God who Jesus presented himself as. We want him to be who he claimed to be, the central authority in our lives. For that is his claim. Make no mistake. Jesus believes that he should be the central authority in your life. It doesn't matter what you've heard. It doesn't matter what you've seen. It doesn't even matter if it was Moses telling you, Jesus saying, I'm here now and I'm in charge and I'm going to be the central authority. And what Jesus is saying is, if you are going to follow me, everything is going to change. Come on, isn't that true? Turn to your neighbor, say everything. Turn to your other neighbor, say everything. Everything is going to change. I love having baptisms every week because we see a picture of everything changing week after week. Everything. Come on, your mind is going to change. Your heart is going to change. Your actions are going to change. Your reactions are going to change. Your vision is going to change. Your values are going to change. Your home is going to change. Your marriage is going to change. Your children are going to change. Your grandchildren are going to change. Your face is going to change. Everything is going to change. You are going to walk different, talk different, think different, live different, pray different, believe different, love different. Everything is going to change. Your character is going to reflect Christ. 
the ultimate authority in your life. Can you say amen? amen? Everything. Why? Because you have a new king. And you have a new authority. It's not you anymore. Thank God. We saw you when you were in charge. Keep them under the water longer. Thank you, Jesus, that you came and claimed us. Thank you, Jesus, that you came and changed us. One of the, one of the greatest phrases, one of my favorite things about hearing what's happening in the church is meeting people who've been coming for the past few months where they say, I am completely different. At the 8.30, we had a, 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 a man that was baptized. Who, his, his testimony was awesome. He said, he said, God has changed every... He said, I am completely different. He said, today, I, or I believe this month, I fulfill my one-year challenge while he was being baptized. And he says, today, I am stronger physically. I am stronger mentally. I am stronger spiritually. I am stronger financially. Come on, I love that. May that be true of you as well. Well, why? Why are you completely different? What happened? You got a new authority. And now, because you have a new authority, you have new actions, new reactions. But it requires something of you. It requires something of you. Jesus requires something of you. He requires surrender. Total and complete surrender. God requires unconditional surrender. When you come to him, he says, I want every part of you. You cannot say, Lord, just take the bad parts of me. Lord, just take the parts of me where I'm screwing up or I can't control. But over here, I'm gonna keep my money under my control. I'm gonna keep my past under my control. I'm gonna keep my relationships under my control, but you can have the rest. That's not how God works. God says, no deal, no deal to that. What does he require? Complete and total surrender of every aspect of you, including what you think. And that, that's many times the hardest part is when you say, Lord, I want to go this way. I feel like I should go this way. When God says, no, I, I don't want you doing that. Or, or what, about, what about when God says, hey, I want you to go apologize to that person. I want you to call that person up. Call them back and say you're sorry about what you just said or what you just did. And we just say, no, Lord. But if we can't surrender there, how can we surrender everywhere? See, this isn't just philosophical. Jesus gets practical. And he's saying, I'm looking for you to wave the white flag in your life. Say, Lord, I'm done leading me. I'm done being in charge. I need you right now. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for surrender. And he will keep you under siege until you've surrendered. Some of you have met this, this side of God where he just badgers you into submission. He's a good God, but he's a forceful God. Think about the, the opening scene in Gladiator where the, the Roman soldiers are lined up and they had the weapons of war and they're fighting the Germanic tribes who are beaten and splintered, you know. And uh, Maximus is second in command. He says, he says um, people should know when they're conquered. And Maximus says, you know, would you? You know, would I, would we know when we're conquered or would we fight to the end? The reality is you can fight God all the way to the end, but you should know when you're conquered. 
You should know when God has surrounded you and says, submit right now. You should be able to wave the white flag, say, Lord, I'm done fighting. I'm done pushing. I'm done being angry. I bow my knee and I submit to you. You take over now. I hope you don't fight until you're 60. I hope you don't push against God until you're 70. I hope you're not on your deathbed trying to justify everything you said and you did. I hope nice and early you say, I fought God and I lost. I am now a willing subject of the Almighty, the gracious and the good. I choose you, Lord. I choose you, Lord. I choose you, Lord. Jesus is waiting, I believe, on many of us for that realization to come about the insufficiencies of our own righteousness, realizing we are not good enough and no one we know is good enough to be our moral lawgivers. Not our government, not our friends, not our institutions, not our professors. No, we are not enough. Humanity is not enough. So today, Lord, we receive your righteousness. We receive your mind. We receive your actions, and hear me, and we submit to them even if we don't fully understand them. We submit to your way of living, even if other people around us mock it. We submit to your moral authority because you are our God. Can you say amen? amen. This, is what, this is what God is looking for out of us. Willing subjects. Like he'll surround you and he'll put you under siege but you're going to have to be the one to bend the knee. You know, and that's why I, I love that story of C.S. Lewis. It took him 10 years. And he said, finally, when I did get on my knees, I was the most reluctant convert. He said, I, I didn't even want to do this, but God just pushed me into his goodness. And he says, the, the, the hardness of God is greater than the softness of any man. God is so good that even when he's tough with you, it's extremely gracious. And maybe you're in that place today and you need today to come and come before the Lord and submit to him. Maybe you've been bitter against God or bitter against the church and you've held on to that in your life. But today God says, come, bend the knee. Bend the knee at the altar. Receive forgiveness. Trust me again. Because see, that's what God's looking for. He's looking for our trust. See, Abraham is the man of great faith, venerated by us because he chose to trust God. In Genesis chapter 22, God comes to him and he says, I want for you, Abram, to give me your son, your only son, whom you love. What's that language? It's John 3:16 in Genesis 22. Give me your only son whom you love. And so the Bible says that he he took Isaac and he journeyed for three days and he came to Mount Moriah, which later you would know as Calvary. And he put the wood on his son Isaac's back. And Isaac, the son, carried the wood up the mountain to an altar that they made. And Isaac willingly got on the altar. And Abram, choosing to trust God, not knowing how this was going to turn out, choosing to trust God's word, submitting himself not to his own way, not to his own thoughts, not to his own path, not to his own ideals, but trusting God even when it doesn't make sense. He takes the knife. And he lifts his arm. Here he is. He's about to kill the love of his life. Can you imagine those of you that are fathers seeing your child sitting there willing, trusting you as you're trusting God, saying whatever God says, do it. 
It's his love. It's his, it's his everything. It's his meaning. We know Abraham was a wealthy man, but in a moment he would give all of his wealth for the life of his son. And yet, God's demanding it. What do you do? Do you acquiesce or do you run away? Do you trust or you, do you take back over control? He lifts the knife. He's going to give not only what he loves, he's, gonna, he's about to kill God's promises to him. It's his only son whom he loves. He, he's promised to be a great man where God is going to give him a legacy of the nations, but this is the son through whom the promises come. And so not only if I kill Isaac, I don't just kill Isaac, I kill God's promises. My calling, my hope, the things I prayed over and fasted over and thought over, I, I'm going to give all that to God? Hold on. You're the one that started all of this, Lord. And now you're taking it away? My vision? And yet he chooses. Prepared to stop his lineage in this moment. And in that moment, the voice of the Lord calls out and says, Abram, don't lay a hand on the boy. I just wanted to see. This is what God was wanting to see, is would you trust me? Would there be a human being that would submit to me all the way through? But see, Isaac wasn't the son that was supposed to die. Jesus was. Jesus is the one that carries the wooden cross up Calvary. Jesus is the one that willingly gets on the altar. Jesus is the one that receives the, the knife from the Father and bleeds down for us. It was Jesus that took our place. But what God is looking for in Abram is what he's looking for in you and I. He's looking for us to trust him to the very end. Our hope, our future, our love, our children. God says, I want it all. I want you to trust me with it all. Today we have to choose. Say, Lord, I trust your word. Genesis 15 verse 6 says, Abram believed the Lord. And therefore God credited it to him as righteousness. How do you become righteous? You got to believe the word of the Lord. And then we can receive the righteousness of the Lord. My question for you today is, have you come to the place in your life where you have chosen to trust God's word over what you've heard, over what you've seen? Today, Jesus is saying, I know, I know where you're coming from. I know what you've heard, but now I'm here and I've got something greater to say to you. Today is the day where we surrender to the words of Jesus. And we're not just going to do this philosophically. Next week, we're going to get into very practical things where we're going to have to surrender our way to God's way. But it starts today where we say, Lord, you become first, foremost in our life. We surrender to you. Thanks for listening to the Awakening Podcast. We hope this message has encouraged you. If you want to learn more about our church, visit us online at awakening.global. We'll see you soon.